Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Well, let us get right to it. We've got lots in store here on our simulcast, and we welcome all of you. Right now, the Secretary of Labor of the United States, Eugene Scalia. And of course, we're thrilled to have you on, Mr. Secretary. After this Supreme Court decision, how will the Department of Labor adapt and adjust immediately to this historic decision? Well, uh, Tom, good to be with you. And uh, yes, it is an important decision. The uh, court uh, issued uh, yesterday. Uh, we at the Labor Department don't have primary responsibility for administering that particular law. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, is the agency charged with administering Title VII. But we're certainly uh, reading through the court's decision, and uh, the, the court has ruled, and uh, we will adhere to that. I mean, it's very important here to understand, Mr. Secretary, that you will set the tone. And we would suggest that Gene Scalia has been doing that for years. Mr. Secretary, there's ideas here of religious exemption to the normal labor of this country, that businesses can say, no, we digress from this ruling. We're not going to do it. Do you think that will be evident immediately? And how should EEOC or labor respond? Well, Tom, I think that was one of the uh, issues that uh, Justice Gorsuch, in uh, his opinion for the majority, uh, sidestepped a little bit. Uh, he acknowledged that uh, uh, people of faith and uh, religious institutions particularly uh, 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 might be uh, affected more than other institutions by this decision. Uh, and, and, uh, and he said that's an issue that we'll uh, address some other day. So I think that was one of the issues the decision uh, potentially raises that uh, will get addressed uh, by the courts uh, down the road. Uh, the majority, the dissenters would have liked the court to address that more fully, but uh, the majority didn't. And so uh, we'll, uh, we'll take a closer look and, and see what implications that has for our programs. Mr. Secretary, thank you for addressing uh, these issues. The issue right now, sir, is double-digit unemployment. Give us an update on what your microdata sees of a depression-level joblessness in America. Well, uh, Tom, I, I, I have to say, uh, I, I think the comparisons to the depression only get you so far. Uh, we have had a very high unemployment. We've had uh, too many Americans uh, put out of work. Uh, and we know the hardship that's meant for them and their families. At the same time, we got here by a very different uh, route than we got into the Great Depression. And I think the jobs report we put out, what, 10, 11 days ago, suggests that we're going to come out of it by a different route, that uh, we put uh, 2.5 million Americans back to work in the month of May. And I think that's a trend that's continuing right now. As you know, that data was a month old. Uh, there's uh, been a lot of reopening since then. So I think people are getting back to work. It is, of course, important that that happens safely, and that's something we keep an eye on. Uh, but I think we're making real headway uh, on the employment picture right now. Well, let's talk about that, Mr. Secretary. Do you see any evidence right now whatsoever that the enhanced unemployment benefits that were passed is holding back rehiring? Uh, we hear, uh, John, we hear concerns about that raised uh, uh, anecdotally by a number of employers. The uh, point... Uh, that they make is that uh, with the un, uh, enhanced unemployment benefit provided by the federal government, which is uh, $600 a week, you put that on top of the state benefit and uh, people can be making uh, between fifty dollars and $55,000 on an annualized basis. 
uh, on unemployment, which is uh, obviously significantly more than one typically sees. And the concern is they'll uh, not return to work. Uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. That benefit, as you know, expires at the end of July. Uh, Congress set that sunset in anticipation that we wouldn't be shutting down our economy at that point. We'd have uh, reopened it and uh, we'd want people to be going back to work. And Mr. Secretary, I remember when we spoke to you last, you said that you do expect those enhanced unemployment benefits to expire in July. And we have heard the same from other administration officials. What could make you change your view? In other words, what data could come in weaker than expected that would make you think, you know what, even if people are making more than they had previously made, it doesn't mean that they necessarily aren't going back to work because they don't want to, and at least they can continue to pay their rent. Well, I think those are a couple of different uh, questions. Uh, we'll look at uh, a variety of data coming in. As you know, obviously, on July 2nd, we'll put, our, put out our report uh, for June. I think that report will show uh, many more jobs added to the economy. But uh, let's look at that report, watch other trends, uh, and see what additionals, uh, additional measures uh, may be needed. I don't think that uh, it's going to be continuing that $600 benefit, which again was a very important, valuable benefit for American workers while we were uh, closing our economy. But uh, it was a blunt instrument uh, that was adopted uh, uh, in March as things were closing so quickly in light of some real limitations that the states had in their uh, unemployment insurance systems. I think we've learned a lot since then, and I don't see that as the policy going forward. Well, let's talk about the policy going forward. Reports this morning of a $1 trillion infrastructure program. Mr. Secretary, are you working with the Department of Transportation on that plan? There are discussions, uh, obviously, as you would want, throughout the administration about uh, what the right steps are uh, for the economy. And uh, we, we certainly appreciate the uh, uh, implications that an infrastructure bill uh, could have throughout the economy, including for employment. And, and those are among the things that are uh, being talked about. Infrastructure, one of them, a $1 trillion plan? <clears throat> well, there have been uh, different uh, numbers put on it. Um, uh, John, I'll just leave it at saying that certainly something that's being talked about. And there's uh, been some interest expressed in it, uh, but we're watching the economy. You know, one of the things that I've said on this show before is one of the real marks of the virus is how swiftly things have changed. And so I think it's important to take the time now to watch the economy uh, develop, watch the reopening, see how it progresses and not rush in. Uh, to a play from the playbook that we used back in March, for example. Well, we'd love to carry on the conversation, sir. So hopefully we can get you back on soon because this labour market healed quickly in the first month. I'm not sure how many economists think it will continue very quickly. And we'd love to get your input on a continued basis as the data continues to come through. Eugene Scalia there, the US Secretary of Labour on this labour market and the global economy. For those of us of a certain vintage, there's a way that you read research on the street. At J.P. Morgan, the way was always Friday evening. You would get the report from Robert Melman, and it would ruin your Friday evening because you would start reading it, and you'd have to go for 15 or even 20 pages. The tradition continues with Michael Ferroli putting together a jewel of a report for Global Wall Street every Friday evening. He joins us now, the chief U.S. economist for J.P. Morgan. Michael, what you're looking at on the consumer are little micro details like charge card dynamics. What do you see right now from the American consumer? Well, uh, what we see in May was a pretty nice rebound from the depths of April. Uh, we see that in a variety of metrics, as you mentioned, Cat Daily. Uh, data on charge cards, uh, a number of other indicators, which suggests, uh, as I said, 
a very strong rebound in May. We'll find out in an hour's time exactly how strong. Uh, and it looks like that was continuing into uh, into June. Uh, we already have a strong indication of this rebound in the uh, May auto sales report, which increased 42 percent. Uh, so, you know, I think in line with the comments earlier, the early part of this uh, recovery are going to be in a way easy because you're coming off of such low levels. And I think the easy part should be May, June, perhaps July. I think after that, the uh, uh, the story gets a little more interesting, but it does look like May should be a pretty strong month for real consumer spending. So let's get to late summer, Mike. Let's just jump out to August, late August, going into September. If we haven't passed another bill down in Washington to help this economy, to support people who are unemployed in a bigger way, to incentivize corporates to rehire workers, what happens? Well, it's not necessarily the death knell of the recovery, uh, but I think further stimulus would be nice insurance against uh, a relapse into more economic weakness. We know for a fact that given the current policy environment, you're going to have a pretty big uh, decline in real disposable income in the third quarter. And the reason is you pack so much of that stimulus into the second quarter, whether it's the stimulus checks, the expanded unemployment benefits, uh, the paycheck protection program. And so we really have to be confident that the economy has its own recovery dynamics in place for there to be no need for further fiscal stimulus. So I don't think it's an absolute uh, necessity or certainty that we need it, but it certainly would be nice insurance against uh, against the relapse into uh, relapse into further weakness uh, as we get into the late summer. So, Mike, help us establish the signpost to determine whether we need the extra package or not. The government, the administration down in Washington are going to take the next month to look over the data, pour over the data and draw conclusions as to what we do and don't need. Is that too early? Uh, so I think part of the, the problem here is, you know, the, the classic fool in the shower uh, uh, challenge with setting uh, either fiscal or monetary policy when it acts with a lag. <clears throat> and so if we have to wait until we actually see uh, the data in the late summer, early fall, uh, it may be too late given the implementation lags and so forth. So, uh, so you know, Congress and the Fed have a, uh, a tough job here, which is to make uh, a judgment on what the economy is going to look like in, in the third and fourth quarter and act now. And I think if we wait until uh, late July, that may may not pass that test of, of being a little forward looking in how we set policy. <clears throat> And this goes to where actually exactly where I wanted to go, this idea that, yes, the economy is recovering, but there still are more than 20 million Americans collecting unemployment benefits. There still are companies going bankrupt at an accelerating pace, depending on which part of the economy you're looking at. And it raises a question of whether the rebound that we're seeing is largely confined to markets or whether the economy is keeping pace. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, Mike, given the fact that you try to square the markets with the economy, how much of the Federal Reserve stimulus of the of the rebound that we're seeing in stock and bond prices? How much of that is getting into the real economy? So, first thing I would say is it does look like the real economy uh, turned the corner in May. I think we we should see some confirmation of that later this morning. Uh, we already saw that in the, in the jobs data. So the economy is picking up. Uh, now it is true that uh, when it comes to markets. Uh, publicly traded companies probably employ only about a third of the workforce. So that leaves about two thirds uh, of the workforce that is employed by companies that aren't listed on uh, the stock exchanges or that don't have uh, listed bonds that the Fed is buying. Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, that the Fed, Fed actions uh, don't have trickle down effects to the rest of the economy. And of course, some of those actions will support 
uh, non-corporate behavior, for example, for example, lower mortgage rates. Certainly the housing sector is one area of the economy that looks uh, like it's holding in uh, reasonably well here. And I think uh, low mortgage rates have to have some uh, some role in that. So it's true the Fed, you know, <laughs> look, I think what you're going to hear from Powell later this uh, morning is that the Fed's actions are designed entirely to help uh, uh, Americans, American households. And, right. you know, that said, there are only limited tools that the Fed has to, uh, to support the economy. Michael, I know that Bruce Kasman has a bottle and there's a genie in it on his desk, but I'm sorry, the genie's out of the bottle. Let's pretend we're at the Booth School seminar in Manhattan, must attend folks for anyone in economics, and we have to look at the central bank history of buying stuff. They can't stop, can they? Once they start, it's really, really hard to say no to buying the next marginal bond or in some banks' history to buy the next marginal share of Apple computer. Do you have any confidence that this Fed can behave? <laughs> well, so two things, two points I would make at least. One is that the Fed has stopped in the past uh, after QE3. We had to took a taper tantrum for them to stop, but but they were able to uh, to pull that off. Uh, secondly, uh, and maybe something that the markets aren't um, fully appreciating here is that the two corporate credit facilities, uh, which have received so much attention over the past 24 hours, uh, those are set to expire on September 30th. And so the Fed, uh, I think deliberately here, when they implemented these programs uh, in March, set expiration dates because they didn't want them to be lingering on. Now, of course, they can extend those expiration dates, but it will take a judgment of the committee that, that the economy is underperforming. So I do think the Fed made a reasonable uh, program uh, design choice here, whereby uh, these should be self-expiring, uh, provided the economy is in a, uh, a decent position by the end of the third quarter. Mike, what would you ask Jay Powell today if you were on the Senate Banking Committee? Uh, I think one thing I would ask him is why, uh, so there's been some indication that the Fed is uh, the next big step is going to come in September. I would I would ask him why wait until September? Why not act last week or why not act in in late July? Um, <clears throat> yes, we don't know the shape of the recovery uh, in two or three years from now, but it's almost certain to be um, in a rather depressed state. So I would I would ask him why why wait? Hey Mike, I'm always great to get your thoughts on this program. <laughs> Good to hear from you. I'm sure you'd have more than one question. Mike Ferroni there of J.P. Morgan, the chief U.S. economist. If you are ever so lucky in science, you can read Leninger's biochemistry and say, well, I sort of wandered by it. Then there are, there are others that master it. Peter Hotes did that at Yale and then in biochemistry at Rockefeller University and then on to Weill Cornell. He is without question with Mr. Fauci, our leader on vaccines. Peter Hotez joins us this morning from Baylor uh, University. Peter, I take great issue with the media silliness over the second wave. It's a three-variable differential equation. Are we looking at a second wave, or is it just the normative expansion of a virus in pandemic? Well, I can... Uh really articulate. First of all, thanks for having me on. I think you're the only uh, major uh, news anchor that knows what Leninger's biochemistry is. So uh, that's really cool. Uh, with regards to uh, uh, what's happening here in Texas, what happened was we did a good job initially. Uh, we, we saw what was happening in New York. We went on uh, lockdown in, in, in the middle of uh, March, and we did everything right. We never got that surge like you saw in New York. 
But then we couldn't keep it together. We couldn't hold it together. The modelers told us we had to keep this in place throughout the month of May. We opened it up uh, towards the end of April, and now we're seeing a massive resurgence. So I don't know so much it's the second wave, meaning reintroduction. It's just that we never, we never brought it down to zero to containment mode like we could have. And now the numbers are climbing right. precipitously in Houston and Dallas and in and, and Arizona now also. You were scrambling to acquire, to invent, to give us a vaccine. Give us an update. Yeah, so we have, um, we're, we've developed a low-cost uh, recombinant protein vaccine made in a yeast, the same technology used to uh, make the recombinant hepatitis B vaccine used all over the world, and it's made locally in India and Brazil and Indonesia and Bangladesh. And we decided we're going to use that technology to make a low-cost, affordable, highly accessible COVID-19 vaccine, and it's going great guns. It looks really promising, and we've been engaging the Food and Drug Administration to move that along, and we think this could be one of the first global health vaccines used all over the uh, used used everywhere and made locally. So uh, the problem is we're not a pharma company, so we don't get the, all the stuff that the you hear about with the Operation Warp Speed uh, companies in terms of big-time government assistance. We're getting some from the NIH, but, you know, we're raising money privately, to, and hopefully we're going to announce a big partnership with India, we hope, in the, in the coming days and weeks. Dr. Hotez, we saw from Moderna's CEO that they're expecting that a vaccine, if all things go well, could be ready by Thanksgiving. I'm wondering, for your perspective on the front lines, how close are we? I mean, what's the time frame, not only for getting a vaccine that is effective and is proven safe, but also can be widely distributed, as you're talking about? Yeah, it's, uh, certainly not by Thanksgiving. What's going to happen is you're going to uh, and uh, you're going to see a number of the warp speed vaccines enter into uh, phase three clinical trials uh, beginning in July, uh, and then it's probably going to take about a year to collect all of the data that we need uh, to show that the vaccines actually work and that the vaccines are actually safe. And that's the part you can't rush. I mean, oftentimes this is sort of and the biotechs do this, and even the, uh, the White House does this. They, they frame this as a manufacturing issue. That, like, they talk about it in the same context as they'll talk about making ventilators or diagnostic uh, kits, and it's not the same. Uh, yes, there are manufacturing issues, but the big hurdle is you need to give it the time to show that it works and it's safe. Uh, and that means doing a 30,000-person study. And I don't, I don't see a path by which you can collect enough safety and data showing that it works before the end of the year. So I think more likely in the, in the middle of next year at the earliest, and even then that would be a world land speed record. So I, I don't know where these, you know, some of the CEOs and some of the, and some of the people coming out of the white house say, Oh, we're going to have it by the fall. I, I just don't see how that can happen. Doctor, I appreciate your time this morning, as always, and looking forward to getting you back on the program. That was Dr. Peter Hodes there of the Baylor college of medicine. Chairman on the Hill for two days. Used to be called Humphrey Hawkins. I can't remember what they call it right now. Always interesting to get the Q&A. Always different from the Senate uh, versus the rabble in the House. It'll be interesting to see. You wonder if they'll address negative interest rates. Somehow, I don't think it will come up. We can do that with our guest. Kenneth Rogoff joins us, of course, at Harvard University. He has been a wonderful supporter of uh, Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance over the years. 
and we're thrilled that he could join us right now. Ken, I have to ask you about your courageous book, The Curse of Cash. Folks, it was my book of the year a few years ago, ever important now. Uh, Ken, give us an update on the efficacy of negative interest rates in the United Kingdom and in the United States of America, given how their financial systems are so different from Europe. Would negative interest rates help? Well, right now, uh, there's so much going on. I, I don't think it would be a good idea to do something so experimental this minute. But if in two years the, after the government is, you know, gone through many more stimulus uh, spending measures after the Federal Reserve has, you know, basically tried to guarantee ever been a credit provider of last resort in the economy for a long time, if things still aren't growing, if uh, the interest rates are very low, I absolutely think that uh, this should be on the table. It's just silly to take it off the table. And if, yes, it would work, but it has to be done the right way. Uh, I don't think even Europe's done it the right way. You have to deal with cash hoarding uh, so that you can make interest rates very negative. But let it be noted that the studies coming out of the European Central Bank have by and large been finding that negative interest rates have worked fairly well, haven't caused the problems mm -hmm. People said there has been pass-through uh, in the banking sector from, you know, certainly the healthy banks, and they find the effects on investment are very similar to normal monetary policy. And I think that's what we could expect in the United States and the United Kingdom. Are we nationalizing our bond market? I mean, that's the question that Chairman Paul is going to get from the Senate today. All of these different programs, including announcement yesterday that they will in some way, and let's say it's efficacious, they will buy corporate bonds troubled and less troubled. Ken, is it anything but a mass nationalization of our debt? Well, it depends on what happens next. So if it turns out that things get better pretty quickly, this clearly will you know, look like a pretty low-cost move that had a big benefit. But, you know, it's funny, usually in crises before this, uh, they would say, well, uh, here's a company that we think is solvent, but there's a liquidity problem, so we're going to provide liquidity and make sure that they can still get financing and not needlessly go bankrupt. That's, you know, usually the main idea. The thing is, if the virus goes on, there are a lot of companies that will need to change radically, they will be liquid because of the Fed, but not solvent because of the virus. And I think they're going to run into trouble. They're taking a gamble. It's a smart gamble, perhaps, but um, absolutely it's a gamble. Uh, of course, this can't go on forever. You can't just have the taxpayer guarantee every credit in the economy. But you could also have, good morning, Professor Rogoff, you could also have a situation where you have a second wave, but actually it's only pockets of the economy that are closed down. It, it, you know, how likely is it that we, we have a second lockdown like we saw in the last couple of months? Well, that's a very good point. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, I wonder if we had to do it again, if we locked down in the same way. There's certainly lots of papers floating around saying that there's smarter ways to do it. I don't know. 
you know, and it's not just what the government does, it's how people react. So clearly, if they're just localized problems uh, that can be contained, it's not an issue. But the likelihood of a major second wave, you know, from the epidemiologists I speak to is very, very high uh, going into late fall and winter. I mean, uh, maybe we'll be able to deal with it better, but, you know, that, that's, that's the concern. Uh, and, you know, it, even something that was enough to scare people back into their houses. So there, there, there's some things like restaurants, hotels, cruise ships, and things which feed into those, uh, which are, are just going to need to be restructured. And so uh, I, the question is how far that's going to go. Are we going to still be in cities the same way that we were? Will we go to smaller and middle-sized cities? I don't know. I suspect there's going to be a lot of restructuring. And we haven't mentioned the political change, which is going to certainly have an impact on uh Corporations. I mean, I, I don't think this is just, uh, you know, I, I think we're going to see an acceleration of the movement for redistribution of income, uh, deglobalization. These are going to have impacts on some firms, and yeah. they're not all going to remain in business. <clears throat> We've been talking about deglobalization for quite some time. Do you think it will be a very stark deglobalization, and you know, or, or are we going to quickly get back to normal. I, I don't want to use the word quickly, but you know, how long will it take to go back to, to more normal? I mean, we've had waves of globalization and deglobalization in the past, and my view is that we were headed for a wave of deglobalization anyway, for <clears throat> political reasons, not economic reasons. Uh, you know, the Trump-Sanders 2016 kind of catalyzed that. And this is going to make that go further. There are going to be things brought onshore for national security reasons, and then there are going to be a lot of other things brought onshore supposedly for national security reasons, like Canadian steel, uh, but, you know, not. And so I, I think it will be pretty, pretty significant. A, a lot of countries are, are, are nervous uh, after this. And, again, the, this uh, push, you know, to try to... Um, say, strengthen labor unions in the United States, that's hard to do when you remain very highly globalized. <clears throat> right. Ken, I know that at Harvard for years you've studied the course, you've taught the course, rather, Free Lunch 302. Can you explain the free lunch of forever at the zero bound? The dot plot chart goes out two years at the zero bound. Who knows after that? And all of our viewers and listeners instinctively know there's got to be a price to that free lunch at the zero bound. What is the price? Well, I mean, it depends on what we do, obviously. So, I, I mean, I think right now the global, normal, global real interest rate is negative. And so given that inflation's very low and that they're not prepared to use negative interest rates, which is really the only way uh, to raise inflation to target or above target if they wanted to, uh, I think interest rates are going to sit at zero for a long time. The concern really is this idea that therefore uh, companies can borrow as much as they want and the government will bail them out. The government can borrow as much as it wants and the Federal Reserve will bail it out. And of course, that is yeah. nonsense. There are limits to these things. We're doing the right thing now, but it, of course it can't go on forever. I suspect we're no. you know, going to see it go on for a long time. 
Ken Rogoff with us. Right now, Ann Richards is with us with Fidelity International. She has a fabulous acuity about investment management and about the trends that we see in finance and economics. And Richards, I want to talk to you about the quiet, silent thing that's out there. It's witnessed in the new dot plot, which is a flat line at the zero bound out two years. Fatih B-roll in oil just told us oil demand out two years will suffer. And that is people like you have to recalibrate what we're going to return long term. Are you working at Fidelity with an actuarial assumption under 4% per year return? Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, interesting question. I mean, I think, I think what you're going to see is quite a wide dispersion of returns. I mean, what the overall aggregate comes out to you know, is, is, as we all know in this environment, who can predict anything? I'm not going to pretend I have the crystal ball on that. But what we're undoubtedly seeing is a much greater disparity between those who've got the cash flow, those who've got the balance sheet, and those who do not. And to try and sort of bring that back to real life, if you look at, for example, what the, if you look at insurance company balance sheet right now, and you look at the proportion of higher yielding assets that will typically be on it because of the way the accounting allows them to to get a better uh, a better capital uplift, if you like, from high yield versus equity, for example. The Fed action has a very direct impact on how robust that balance sheet looks. So there's an awful lot, as I mentioned earlier, about this smoothing out the bottom of the V that has a direct impact on how certain sectors and how certain stocks within those sectors are resilient or not in coming through this, which makes it really a stock picker's market. Okay, it's a stock picker's market, but Ann Richards, I want to go back to the long-term responsibilities of investment houses like, you know, your work with M&G years ago and your work now with Fidelity. Yesterday, we had a California bombshell where we've decided we're going to leverage up 20% to make the bogey to pay retirees. That's not in any of the textbooks, is it? No, it's absolutely not. And I think you, some of your other guests this morning, as, as, as real live economists rather than humble practitioners like me, will, will have a really good insight into the complexities of some of that stuff. No, we are absolutely in new territory. And there is a strong argument that can be made that if you're a government or another entity and you can borrow long at practically zero interest rates, actually, you can get a lot of productive capacity out of that. It just depends what you put that into. So it comes back to the use of the capital as much of the simple act of borrowing, which will clearly determine the returns, because we don't really know how is consumption, how is a a basic economic consumption model going to be affected by what we've come through? And until we know what the job recreation is after this, when everyone comes off the government schemes, it's really difficult to see how the consumer is going to respond and how the consumer response is going to have a huge impact on whether some previously viable business models are still viable in the future. But if you have a viable business model and you can bar it or, or low, then, then clearly you have the chance to generate really good returns out of this. And talk to me a little bit about dividend cuts and how actually impacts you know, investor decision making. So dividend cuts are, you know, the signaling around dividend cuts are one of probably the most challenging things that we have to manage because dividends have been a large proportion of total return over the years and that ability to reinvest those dividends and, and the compounding effect from that. 
There's been quite a lot of signaling from quite a lot of the companies that we look at where they have cut dividends, but it's in the recognition that it's not necessarily one and done, that there is a hope and an expectation as the broader economic environment normalizes whenever that might happen, that a return to some level of dividend plus some level of dividend growth is an expectation. So there is there is a feeling that not all the dividend cuts are clearly permanent, but some will be. And that's where it comes back to looking at the resilience of the balance sheet, looking at the cash that has been raised through equity issues, looking at what the underlying cash flow is. And I think what we have to be really careful about when we pull all of that together into a portfolio is to make sure that when we are when we are selling our investment products and when investors are buying, for example, an income fund, that they really understand is the income that is being paid out true income or is is there an element of capital distribution within that? Because I think that's the risk as an individual investor that you can get into when you start to actually look at at income-paying funds. Are you really sure you understand what you're buying within that? So it's not an easy and simple scenario here. Has um, active management, you know, shown its value during the crisis? I think it really has. I mean, when we've looked across, I mean, you know, obviously generalities are always difficult. And I look at the funds that we look after. And we've definitely seen the types of funds that have a wider remit, that have a stronger thematic edge to them and perform better. And in particular, um, funds with a kind of ESG tilt to them, our ESG ratings, the stocks that we rate more highly in our own proprietary ESG rating system, unquestionably outperformed both on the equity side and interestingly on the debt side through the crisis. It's a, you know, it's a relatively short time period to look at that in. But that has been supported by data from other, other types of um, index providers and so forth. So I think it does show you that active management done in the right way can really add value through this. But obviously it is quite specific to individual themes, to individual types of mandates that you have. But we're certainly comfortable and we've seen ourselves in net inflow all through this year pretty much into our active funds. So it's an interesting picture. Oh, and thanks so much. I'm Richard Zero Fidelity International. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 